Good morning, DJ and PK. It's 97.5 and 12.80 The Zone. All right, we got a lot of basketball coming up for you. Got some current events with Steve Cleveland. His take, haven't been around basketball a long time. Met a lot of people, different people, different places. Seen a lot of poverty. Seen some racial strife. Seen some racial harmony. We'll talk with Steve Cleveland coming up later this morning. And Dan Feldman, NBC Sports Pro Basketball Talk. Both those guys coming up later in this hour. But we start off with Ben Golliver from the Washington Post talking with PK and I about John Stockton. Not getting enough, not getting enough love, not getting enough publicity, uh, kind of being glossed over in the last dance. Here's Ben Golliver from the Washington Post. You wrote a piece about John Stockton in The Last Dance. You didn't think, I, if I'm uh, quoting you accurately, you didn't think you got enough due. What were you looking for? Well, here's the thing. I mean, the whole premise of The Last Dance is Michael Jordan's competitive spirit, how much he loves the game, how, you know, his will to win. I mean, that's the major theme, right? And I think that one of the big flaws from this project is um, there's a lot of great players from the 1990s who pushed Jordan's teams pretty hard none more so than Utah Jazz in 1997 uh, and 98. And if you really want to tell the story of Jordan the champion, you've got to build up those opponents too. And I thought they gave a little bit of short shrift to a guy like Charles Barkley. Um, you know, it seemed like guys like Gary Payton or Isaiah Thomas, you know, if they're really willing to engage and, and kind of uh, pound their chest a little bit on camera, they got plenty of time. But for some of the other competition, I just thought there should have been more of an acknowledgement uh, of what those guys meant to the league. And, and in Stockton's case in particular, I mean, as you guys know, he's not a full-time starter in the NBA until his mid-20s. He plays until he's 40. He squeezes every little bit of uh, a juice out of his career. He, you know, There's nothing else in his life. He's devoting it entirely to uh, you know self-improvement and making sure he's the best player he could possibly be. To me, if anybody else kind of exemplifies uh, Jordan's approach to the game and his, his commitment to basketball and his desire to win – uh, it's John Stockton. And look, those those Jazz teams gave the Bulls a run for their money in 97 and 98. Um, you know, they, they were un, unfortunately unable to get Carl Malone and, and Brian Russell to do interviews for that project, which I think would have provided a little bit of better balance as well. Uh, but you did have Stockton in the interview. So I just would have liked to hear something from Jordan uh, commenting on, you know, one of the greatest players of all time and a guy who really shared his same approach to the game. Uh, and who ultimately, like, you know, delivered two really entertaining, very memorable uh, NBA, NBA final series. It seemed like Jordan only wanted to admit he was pushed if it went seven, and he was perfectly willing <laughs> to either ignore or – and you don't know what he said to hit the editing room floor. You know, maybe there's a clip out there and he said something about Stockton and it just didn't make the show. But uh, he was pretty dismissive of Clyde Drexler, who was an awfully good basketball player. I mean, Clyde Drexler was on the dream team. Well, that's exactly what I'm saying. I mean, they barely even mentioned the 92 finals, which again went six games and had some pretty tense moments for, uh, from the Bulls standpoint. Uh, Charles Barkley, who obviously has a, a personal uh, animosity, I guess, you know, Jordan does towards Barkley at this point of their lives after being friends for years and years. I mean, I thought he was really downplayed in this documentary, especially considering he was Jordan's longtime friend, dream team teammate, golfing buddy, and everything else. So, um, you know, it wasn't necessarily the most complete picture of the other players within the documentary. I thought, you know, one guy who got, uh, you know, presented fairly well was Magic Johnson, not only as a competitor, but also as kind of a target for Jordan in terms of earlier in his career trying to chase Magic Johnson's example or trying to live up uh, to the shadow of Larry Bird. But, uh, I mean, we did see after the 98 finals when Michael Jordan's banging on that piano and he says how scared he was, 
when Scottie Pippen went down. Look, there was a real respect factor there. I mean, there was a you know a real concern that uh, the Jazz you know had been there before, were experienced, were going to execute uh, you know their offense exactly like always. We're going to be tough, hard-nosed on defense, and they were going to push the Bulls. Uh, and Jordan absolutely, um, you know, got a look at uh, what, you know what could have been a really difficult Game Seven uh, without Scottie Pippen, and uh, you know he narrowly avoided, you know, he kind of cheated death there, right, um, by being able to pull things out late in that game. Uh, but there's no question to me, there's got to be a respect factor there both ways, uh, and I just wish we would have heard it. Now, I understand Pippen didn't like the way he was portrayed. You know, he didn't go in that one time. Jordan wasn't even on the team then. But they show him basically limping up and down the floor at the end there, as you say. Who knows what would have happened in Game 7. Uh, I thought that it was maybe accurate, but it's not me. It's, it's, it's Pippen, and those are his feelings. What did you think? Well, you guys are a partnership, right? I mean, if, if one of you made a documentary and uh, you kind of highlighted the most challenging moments of the other one's entire career, you know, the migraine game, sitting down in 94 and not showing up uh, you know, in the playoffs, you know, when the Tony Kukoc takes that shot, if you looked at his injuries, if you looked at his holdout, um, you know, if, if you called him selfish uh, because he decided not to get the surgery during the offseason and waited until the, the 97-98 regular season, if he's demanding a trade and all this other stuff, and they really skimped over all of your good moments, I imagine you guys would have a little bit of a problem with that, too. I mean, I certainly would. I just didn't think they showed very much of Pippen's on-court impact uh, in the series at all. I mean, they, they show him guarding Magic Johnson in the 91 finals, which I'm sure you and your listeners remember that. I mean, it's just an incredible job, uh, you know, guarding one of the all-time greats, if not the greatest point guard ever, up and down the court, just making his life miserable. But beyond that, a lot of uh, Scotty's best moments were left out. They show him missing some free throws in the documentary. And it was one of those situations where Jordan gives him the compliment up front by saying, hey, look, this is the greatest teammate I ever played with, and I, you know, I really respect him. I've never won a title without him. Then he, he goes back to, to Pippen's weaknesses time and time again uh, throughout this documentary. And if I, think, if I was Pippen, I would feel like it wasn't, uh, you know, properly balanced in terms of showing my strengths and my weaknesses. Ben Golliver joining us, national NBA writer for the Washington Post. So Jordan's got the six titles, and he's the goat for the people who never saw Bill Russell and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar anyway. But he's he's the gold standard for certainly the last 30, 40 years – and everybody's trying to get to those titles. Kawhi's got two. If he gets a third this year, because he's Kawhi and because he's won on other teams and other circumstances, does it kind of get glossed over the way I think the, the Spurs 99 title does? And I'm, I'm fine with the fact. The asterisk that Phil Jackson puts on it has faded in my mind. Is there going to be an asterisk on this? Will it fade? Does it depend on who wins it? Well, I think that that asterisk uh, for the Spurs has tended to fade because they won so many others after that fact, right? So it kind of gets lumped into their total uh, their total count. And by the way, it's kind of the same deal for the Miami Heat. I mean, they win in 2012, and there was a little bit of asterisk talk because it was a lockout shortened season then. I mean, obviously they were a phenomenal team that year, but they wind up winning another one, and, and to me that asterisk talk fades. So I do think, like, uh, if it's, you know, whether it's LeBron with the Lakers or Kawhi, uh, with the Clippers, if one of those guys is to win here, um, they're probably going to face a little bit less scrutiny or less questions on that front because they've won at other previous times. I mean, the people who I would worry for would be somebody like a, a Giannis, a Tenacumpo, or 
you know, a team like the Boston Celtics or just another team that, you know, maybe is a little bit off the radar where if they won a title this year, uh, people would say, well, the only reason why they won uh, was because of the of the shutdown and the weird circumstances. And look, I think that's unavoidable. And I think it's actually a strong argument for why they should stick to the traditional playoff format. I think the fewer things that you change, uh, the less there is this talk about, oh, the NBA has a gimmick bracket or anything else like that. It kind of makes you have a, a feeling of normalcy uh, as much as possible during a pretty trying time. To me, it's a strong argument for just using the normal 16-team playoff group to try to head off some of that asterisk talk and, and to make sure that your champion is like truly validated and, and respected as much as possible. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's going to hang over the season. There's no question. I mean, we never had a year that got shut down in March. If you go all the way back to 1947, there's never been a year where a champion wasn't crowned. And so I know that's what's really motivating Adam Silver here is to get that done. What do you think about pushing the season back? Because obviously they're probably going to happen this year, but as far as making it permanent. My big problem with that is uh, if you start in December, that means your free agency is in September. And that's an issue to me because, look, right now the free agency kind of is the tail that wags the dog, right? I mean, free agency in the draft winds up getting – uh, more attention sometimes, more interest than even the actual games themselves these days. I don't think you want to put your free agency period in September when you're going against the NFL, college football, uh, and Major League Baseball simultaneously, right? I mean, most of us right now, if, if Kevin Durant's making his free agency decision, we're sitting around waiting until the 4th of July, and you know we're kind of you know following that stuff hour by hour, minute by minute. I think the entire dynamic changes if you're competing against SEC football or you're you're competing against uh, you know the game of the week on Sunday or, or Monday Night Football, whatever it might be, uh, I, I think the whole picture gets a lot co- more complicated there. Uh, so to me, I, I think that the trade-off of starting later and getting some of your games, not competing head-to-head against uh, against uh, football, uh, would be lost you know, and kind of sabotaged by putting your free agency against football. So for that reason, I don't like it personally, uh, but I understand the, the calls to do that. I think ultimately some of those calls might just be a first step towards trying to shorten the season. It's something that's talked about for years uh, in the NBA in terms of is 82 games too long. We're seeing lots and lots of injuries. It feels like star players uh, year after year. And I do wonder if you cut the schedule down a little bit, you know, if it's 65 games or whatever, uh, whether you might, uh, you know, get a healthier product and a a more stable product. But I think some of those conversations are going to have to be tabled here because the NBA is going to need to be in, in revenue mode uh, no matter what here coming out of the coronavirus pandemic, whenever it takes place, they have a lot of ground to make up. This has been a massive financial blow to the league, uh, and it really set them back kind of out of nowhere. You know, we've actually discussed a 66-game schedule for years because we've been doing this show for a long time, and I just wonder if they went to that, if suddenly Kawhi would be playing 44 games. <laughs> I just think it's move, moving <laughs> yeah. the base. Instead of moving the base back, that's moving the base up at first base to get rid of the close plays. No, I, I hear you. And, I mean, they're trying their best to try to, like, you know, stamp out, quote-unquote, load management. But uh, I think we saw it in, in the Last Dance documentary, too. It's not always the smartest thing to play 82 games. Now, guys like Stockton and Jordan did it every single year, right? But Jordan's exhausting himself after the first three titles, and he has to go play baseball. After that 98 title, he looked tapped out again. And I thought he was very unconvincing when he said, oh, yeah, I wanted to come back for a seventh title. It's like, well... I mean, that's my, maybe that's how you feel right now, but I bet back then you just wanted to take a break and, and you were kind of overwhelmed with the fame 
and the and the burden and the uh, you know the high usage rates and all that stuff on the court. He probably just wanted a little bit of a break. And so uh, you know, to me, I, I do think there's some uh, logic or or um, you know reasoning behind trying to pace yourself and, and not run yourself into the ground like Jordan did. But of course, we don't want to see a guy play 44 games in a season intentionally. I mean, I think that's not good for the product, and certainly that doesn't help you get back uh, the, mo- the momentum from a financial standpoint that the NBA needs to regain. Ben, we appreciate a few minutes. Thanks for joining us. All right, guys. Take care. There's Ben Golliver from the Washington Post, Dan Feldman from NBC Sports Pro Basketball Talk. How does he think the Jazz are going to do on the playoffs without Bogdanovich? He's bullish on the Jazz. Stay with us. Take the zone with you wherever you go. Let's go. Download the all-new Zone Sports Network app on your phone and get live streaming of the zone as well as podcast editions of every show. From Salt Lake to Shanghai, Provo to Portugal, or Ogden to Oslo, wherever you go, we'll tag along. Let's go. Download the new Zone app by searching Zone Sports Network wherever you shop for apps. It's the Zone Sports Network app. From 97.5, 1280, The Zone, and The Zone Sports Network. DJ and PK, it's 97.5 and 1280, The Zone. Time to welcome in Dan Feldman, NBA writer for NBC Sports Pro Basketball Talk. He joins us on the Sprint special guest line. Sprint makes it safe and easy to get what you need online. Please visit Sprint.com for online services and local store availability. Dan, good morning. Hey, how are you doing? We're doing all right. Uh, the NBA seems to be getting closer and closer to a return, a Thursday vote. The reports are out there, 22 teams. Uh is there anything that's going to derail this? Because it seems like it's about to happen. You know, I, I could see something derailing it, but this is by far the most likely scenario. They've weighed all the options they've got to this point. Like, it's hard to see what that would be. It's not a done deal yet, right? They've still got to have the vote. There's still room for something to happen. Uh, but it just seems so likely that this is the way it's going to go. How long do you think when we say this is the way it's going to go, would the season be if they have some regular season games – and then some postseason because we know now the postseason is basically two two and a half months. How long do you foresee? Would you forecast at see going with this new plan, whatever it might be? You know, you can shorten it up a little because there's no travel, right? Sometimes there's two days off between playoff games. You can mostly, if not always limit that to one, so that'll shave off some days there. Uh, but I think everybody's at this point comfortable with it. You know, going into the fall, uh, September, October, see what's necessary, exactly how many regular season games you're going to play in this plan. And, uh, you know, do you need to have a break before the playoffs? How long the training camp do you have to have before? Uh, reportedly, they're looking at a July 31st start date. The, the thing I'm real curious about the length is how much flexibility do they have if it gets delayed because of coronavirus, if you know somebody tests positive, is there room to add days off before their team's next game? Uh, things like that. How much flexibility is there, or is it, hey, somebody tests positive, like we're moving on with or without you? That's just what it is. Or what if you know there's a coronavirus outbreak uh, w- within the whole operation, and you need a couple weeks to to get that under control and and feel like you can? I mean, maybe if, if that happens, you can't. But is there flexibility to to have a delay there? That's what I'm really curious about. So this long layoff, has it benefited any teams uh, more than others, or has it hurt any teams more than others? 
The answer is yes. Uh, the unsatisfying answer is we don't know exactly who, right? It's which teams uh, are staying in the best shape or on the other side staying, uh, not staying in the best shape, getting out of shape. And you know, we know, we have a sense of how players are motivated to stay in shape, what kind of condition they're in. During the structure of an NBA season in normal times, it's like in a lot of businesses, some employees are better at working home than others, and you don't necessarily know who they are until they're put in that position. This is just generally not how it works for NBA players. Uh, you know, if you watch that horse competition on ESPN, you, you saw such a varying level of, of courts that players had access to and those are the players who had courts at all not everybody does and so everybody's coming back in different places you can look at a team like the 76ers uh, where Ben Simmons got healthy and say yeah that could be good for them they got some more time for Ben Simmons to get over his injury Uh, but Joel Embiid has had conditioning issues throughout his career particularly when he's been hurt and out of the team structure a bit so that could go the other way there's a lot of who knows with it did we watch the horse competition this is sports radio conley was in it we broke it down for two weeks <laughs> and he had the nicest court right that's got to bode well for utah i think you know I, I i can't imagine any other players having a nicer setup maybe some some other guys have the same setup but you know if he's motivated he's got all the resources he needs to to be in game shape and not everybody does Right. So with that in mind, and that, that's well articulated, uh, what do you think that they will do with that, as you say, to get in some form of shape, whether it's exhibition games or it's regular season games, leading up to the postseason? I think there'll be regular season games. I also think there'll be a, a period before that for a training camp. Now, my curiosity is uh, a lot of the best practices for coronavirus, there were reports that they're going to have everybody quarantined for two weeks once they got to the bubble. Well, what does quarantine mean? Everybody has different ideas about it. To me, quarantine is pretty strict. Like, you are in a room alone. You're not mingling with other players on your team. You're not going out and, you know, that's how you can ensure that coronavirus isn't there when you start this whole bubble or campus setting or whatever they want to call it. Uh, So that's another two weeks if they're doing it that way of how good a shape are you going to be if you're locked in a room for two weeks, if you're you know locked in a very small area? Uh, and so you might need time after that to ramp it up. Uh, it, it depends on the structure exactly how much they need to allow here. Dan Feldman joining us, NBA writer for NBC Sports Pro Basketball Talk. Do you anticipate 100% of the players on the 22 teams, if that's the plan, but 100% of the players going to Orlando, 95%, 70%? How many... How many people want in on this? Uh, I'm going to say over 100%, because I think there's going to be some roster flexibility. I I think there's going to be room for two-way players to play in the playoffs. This all has to be negotiated, but I think it's headed that way, of two-way players being able to play in the playoffs when they wouldn't have otherwise, and maybe even roster spots beyond that, because everybody's worried about injury. Everybody's worried about uh, a player getting sick or or these things where you don't want it to devastate a team's depth, uh, something like that that emerges in these unprecedented situations teams a chance uh, to be able to put you know capable players out there and you know you don't want to compound it right if a team has a couple injuries you don't want to have to start playing other players way too many minutes and putting them at greater risk of injury too 
Do you find it odd, and maybe odd's not the right word, but nevertheless I'll use it in this situation, that the league could restart, but yet they won't include everybody? In some ways, yes, right? You put it that way, and yeah, it does seem weird, like all these teams. But let's just look at where the NBA goes at this point of the year in mid-March every single season anyway. These games don't matter. For the teams outside the playoff race and, you know, out there, this is not something you guys have experienced often. Uh, teams outside the playoff race, they have nothing to do but start tanking. It makes for miserable games. I don't see a pl- point of playing those games as they're played in regular times, uh, let alone now. So as you look at this going forward, do you think this is the playoffs are going to play out kind of – uh, generally with the better teams doing better, or to your point earlier about these different opportunities for different teams and possibilities, could this be a total outlier and the finals could be a six seed versus an eight seed? You know, I don't know. We look at the 99 lockout. The, the Knicks as an eight seed made it to the finals. You know, I think the lockout had something to do with that unpredictability. I also think that happened to be a year where the East one through eight teams were fairly balanced, where there wasn't as large of a difference as most years. Uh, but that was still atypical. To me, uh, the answer to your question, I don't know what the answer is going to be, but I think the answer is going to determine whether we, uh, as onlookers, put an asterisk on this season. If it's a weird thing where, hey, it turns out the Magic, where the team that was best in staying shape and, and they go real far, maybe even win it, people are going to say, you know, okay, good for the Magic, but also we're not trying to honor an NBA championship for the team that did the best job of staying in shape during a global pandemic. That's not what we're trying to honor here. That's the type of thing that would get an asterisk. So it just depends who wins to me, uh, whether or not we'll view this with an asterisk. Every single one of these players and coaches has individual lives and they have their own sets of circumstances. We know with Joe Ingles, we have him on the show every week. His wife is pregnant. He's got a special needs kid. How do you think it's going to play out as far as allowing some form of families and whatever it may be to be in Orlando during this time, however long it is? Yeah, it it makes me nervous because on any level, right, you don't want players who want their families there to not have that, to be away from them from so long is is not good. And to invite them is not good either in a lot of ways uh, because it's more people who could bring in coronavirus, who could spread coronavirus. It just makes the whole operation more dangerous. Uh, there's no good answer there. <laughs> Everybody's gonna, if, if there's a way to do it sufficiently safely, I think you you know you got to allow it and have families there, and that's the better option. Uh, but to, there's you know there's no exact like safety yes or safety no. The more people, the less safe it is. That's just the reality of it. Uh, and so you you hope to find the right balance. It's not easy. So how much is the NBA uh, embracing the concept of a December through August schedule, and how much is it just kind of a necessity based on how the end of this season is going to finish? Do you really think five years from now they're going to be playing December through August, that this will just be a a natural transition and they'll stick with it? 
You know, it's a great question. I don't know. I mean, this is the opportunity. There have been people within the league pushing for a December start. And so there's been interest there. And if you're going to do it, it makes more sense now than ever, right? You already will have your calendar lined up. You don't have to do anything. In fact, to get back to the October start as you're used to, you're going to have to adjust something else to get back on that track if that's what you want to do. I, I think they're going to go back to the October start just because, yes, there's been some – uh, support for moving it back to December, but that's that's you know kind of the the loud minority. I think there's more of a silent majority happy with where it is, and I I think you're going to hear more from them if it starts to go the other way. Uh, but for the people who want a December start, this is the opportunity. What is your guess on what will happen? Uh, you know, I think they're I think they're going to come back, and I. You know, I, I don't know. I, I really don't. I mean, everything is so unpredictable in these times right now. I, I, you know, I think they're going to come back. I think they're going to get it up and running. And I don't know exactly how far they're going to get. You see uh, basketball leagues elsewhere in the world have, have thought they're coming back. And then there will be stutter steps along the way of, oh, it's, you know, hey, something came up with Corona. It's not working as, as we hoped. And uh, that happens all the time. The NBA has a lot of resources. If anybody can do it safely, uh, a big operation like this, it's the NBA who who seems to care about treating its players the right way, who can pay for testing, who can uh, deal with all this infrastructure, who seems to have a, a good setup at Disney World. But I'm not sure anybody can pull something of this size and magnitude off in a time of Corona like this. I, you know, I don't know, but I, I tend to think it's going to work out for the league, but would not be surprised if something interrupts this whole plan. But the fact they're playing baseball in Taiwan and Korea and the fact they're playing soccer in Germany, shouldn't that encourage people who are looking at the NBA coming back? I mean, there's three leagues, and I realize those sports are all outdoors, and maybe that's maybe that's a, a big difference, but it seems like they're able to pull it off. It seems like the, the resources the NBA has, they ought to be able to do it. Yeah, that absolutely is encouraging. But like you said, those two sports are outside. Uh, baseball players are socially distanced during a game far more than basketball. Uh, the league in soccer has had some some cases, right? So that's not perfect there. Uh, but yes, those, those things are encouraging. I, I just remind everybody though uh, that who would want to give the NBA the benefit of the doubt, the NBA was playing games when it was not safe to. Right before they shut down. Now, I didn't know it was unsafe. A lot of us didn't know it was unsafe. Uh, everybody, I think, has learned a lot about this very quickly. But the NBA also then was bragging about how on top of things they were. That they had the, you know, they were talking to health experts. They knew what was going on. They they kept playing too long. Like in hindsight, I can say that, you know. But I'm not claiming that I was on top of things. Uh, even the night Rudy Gobert tested positive, they planned to tip off a game that had started. The Pelicans refused to play against the Kings. Otherwise, the NBA was like, yeah, let's just play one more. That was not a good idea. So I'm not sure that like, just because the NBA thinks it's a good idea, it's going to be a good idea, but I do think they're taking a little bit more precaution, a lot more precaution now. How tough is it going to be for the Jazz? Because obviously Bogdanovich is out. 
Yeah, I mean, that's uh, w- w- one of many concerns, right? I, You know, there are questions about uh, Donovan Mitchell and Rudy Gobert. I'd like to hear from Donovan Mitchell about how he feels. I, a lot of people in the Utah organization have, have said, hey, it's behind us. That's on Donovan Mitchell to say. And, uh, you know, I'd, I'd like to see that from him, to have confidence in it. Uh, the Jazz have a shot. They're a talented team. They could advance deep in the playoffs, uh, but but they've got to figure some of these things out. Dan, we appreciate a few minutes. Thanks for joining us, and uh, we'll read you online. NBA writer for NBC Sports Pro Basketball Talk. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for having me. There's Dan Feldman from NBC Sports Pro Basketball Talk. When we come back, our basketball insider, Steve Cleveland. Take the zone with you wherever you go. Let's go. Download the all-new Zone Sports Network app on your phone and get live streaming of the zone as well as podcast editions of every show. From Salt Lake to Shanghai, Provo to Portugal, or Ogden to Oslo, wherever you go, we'll tag along. Let's go. Download the new Zone app by searching Zone Sports Network wherever you shop for apps. It's the Zone Sports Network app. From 97.5, 1280, The Zone, and The Zone Sports Network. DJ PK, we're joined now by Steve Cleveland, our basketball insider. Steve, good morning. Good morning. So... With the NBA potentially poised to restart here on Thursday, uh, we had Dan Feldman on, NBA writer for NBC Sports Pro Basketball Talk, who doesn't think that losing Bogdanovich is necessarily that big a hit to the Jazz. It could turn out to be that way. Do you think the Jazz are capable of picking up that 20 points a game he brings? Well, I, I think, you know, one of the things that Conley started playing well, and, you know, in his role – um, you know, he had a significant role and then kind of disappeared for a while and, and then he kind of resurged again. So, um, you know, I, 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 my gut feeling is that they're not the same team. doesn't mean they can't do things differently and other people take different roles, but you'd much rather have them than not. And uh, I think that Conley has to take a more significant role. Joe Ingles needs to score. You know, both those guys need to be 15 to 18 point night games if they're going to take Rodonovich's place. But um, they'll step up, and, and uh, uh, everybody will. Some some guys will assume some new roles. They'll have a little less depth. I, I think are they allowing them to pick up a couple of extra players before they get started again? If somebody maybe somebody's out there that's available, but uh, uh, I, I you know I think it's it's a pretty significant loss. I mean, you're talking about a guy who's 18, 19 a game, um, but there are people there. They're pros. Uh, I think Conley has to take a major step forward. And uh, and I think Joe Ingles does too in terms of just having that mindset to score rather than just being a distributor and taking the open shots that you get. They got to be both have to be more aggressive. I don't want to get too political with you because that's not the point of our show. But I do want to ask you something regarding of what's going on in the world with these protests and and looting and all this stuff. In my mind, we know we saw some of it down here in downtown Salt Lake City on Saturday. And my thought is. Maybe some of it could have been mitigated if just a couple miles to the west the Jazz were in a home playoff game. And my point for you, and you've been there at the ground level, so I think you're very much qualified to answer this question in terms of how much you have seen sports, in your case basketball, from people of all different walks of life, particularly you know, with you at the foreign guys that you've coached and junior college kids that you've brought in that may have some so-called baggage, but how much can sports bring people together? 
Well, I, I think you can bring people together in ways that hardly anybody else can. And, I, and what we're what we're seeing here, there's so many layers to to this ignorance and selfishness and. You know, and, and, and that a lot of people have used a lot of different words. I, I think Dale Murphy over the last few years, you know, the systemic issues that we have, they are systemic. And these, uh, it's not just the United States, it's throughout the world. And uh, so when I think about sports and I think about the character traits that one must have to be selfless, to be hardworking, to be a good teammate, to uh, help a guy up, uh, you know, I, I'm not saying that you can't find prejudice and uh, racism in, in, in teams and organizations uh, of sport, but you see a lot less of it there than you would uh, what we see happening in the real world. And if you take the take the attributes of good teams, you know, the, that's those are the things. Uh, you know, I'm a Christian. I believe that you know. We, uh, I love God and I love other people and I equally, and that's, that's, that's how I'm going to live my life. And, and we, we love each other and we support each other, and that's what we see teams doing. And that's why when we see teams come together, they're so united. They, we, we've talked a lot about culture, but that culture you know, in, includes uh, treating people with respect, treating people, trusting people. You know, all the character traits that make intangibles that make teams great are the things that are that are missing in our society amongst uh, different factions of people. And we're, I'm not here to characterize any particular group, but at the end of the day, we're, we would be really naive to think that uh, there are a lot of things that have been going on for a long, long, long time. This darkness, I think it was Martin Luther King who said, darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Only love can do that. Well, you know what? I've been on teams where... You, you, when the season's over, that's one of the first things that guys talk about is how much I love playing with his teammate, how much I respected him. And those qualities that we learn as small children growing up in our homes or wherever, our churches, whatever, you know, those are the things that are missing in our world right now. And it is problematic, and it is it's painful to, to see the insensitivity towards others of color or gender or whatever, the, whatever it is. I mean, I... Um, it, it's hard for me not to bring my faith into, not, not my church, but my faith into the fact that, you know what, we've we got to be treating people better, and we shouldn't stand for this. And uh, it's, uh, we, we need more inclusion. We need to be more humble. We need to be kinder. And, uh, and so the one thing that sports does, uh, no matter what color they are, whatever their what background is, whatever their economic, financial situation is growing like, they're together. And that's always been there. I mean, that, that's the one thing about sport is that it's always been there. And for the fan base, it's something that they can connect to and be a part of that family as well. And, you know, if we treated uh, other people like we do our family and our favorite teams and favorite players with such adoration and love, well, you know, everyone deserves that kind of attention and respect and so if you just look at your own life and see where you feel the safest you know it might be following your favorite team or a favorite coach or someone in your family but there's always that love and and that respect and there isn't uh what we're seeing today and and i i think you know sometimes you got to learn to walk in other people's shoes and uh and i do i i do like the idea i mean i'm not a I'm not on social media as much as you guys are, but I, I, I watch enough and hear enough 
to see athletes, black athletes, white athletes, Asian athletes that are stepping up and, and sharing that, you know, there's, we, we can't tolerate this. We, we, we can have a say in society. And you know what? These athletes can. And uh, the thing that was disturbing to me is watching communities, in, in, in your own, like you said, in your own community in Salt Lake, to see, see, to see what happened and how, how that deteriorated so quickly. To from completely away from the point of the whole purpose of peaceful protesting and recognizing the absolute wrongs that are going on in society, and then to do the looting and the destruction and 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 and, and oftentimes uh, people of color's businesses. I mean, it's just insane. And so, yeah, I do believe that sport is a good thing, but it can't be just to get our mind off it. That they have to have a voice. I, I think our athletes and our coaches. And the community leaders have to have a voice in this, and it needs to be heard. And I, I think that offends some people. They get they get uncomfortable with that. And we're way past getting uncomfortable. We've been mistreating people in this country for a long, long time. And so, who who do people who do the young people look to? They, they look to their athletes. They look to people that are in the public eye. And when someone can get in the public eye and speak intelligently about how we should treat each other, I think it's a really, really good thing. And so. I, I think that an added responsibility of being a role model. No, we all, you know, nobody wants. I'm not, not a role model. I'm not a role model. You know what? We need role models. You're going to you're going to take on and put the hat on of being a professional athlete. You you've got to understand that people are watching you and that they they looking at your example. And in a world where things, a lot of things are broke. These athletes have no idea. Some of them have no idea of the influence for good that they can have. So I'm all for team. I have no problem with uh, an athlete or anyone in any profession stepping up and saying something that's intelligent and well thought out and that's kind and loving towards another man or another woman. So, uh, yeah, I, I believe sports can play a big role in this. So, Steve, I've had occasion over the last seven or eight years to um... – learn a lot more about poverty and hunger, how pervasive it is, and just the grinding nature of poverty, how it just wears people down and takes hope away. And on one level, you know it, but then you learn something else. And it's like peeling back an onion. Every time I think I know it, then something else happens. And I learned something I didn't know, you know, three months earlier. And I think that as a basketball coach, recruiting, you go in neighborhoods and you meet all kinds of people, and especially as a junior college basketball coach, maybe even more than D1, because you're looking for diamonds in the rough everywhere. Uh, my personal opinion is that as much as this has been about police brutality the past week, as well it should be, um, but the background of this is that it's like the dry grass before a fire. Poverty just sets a tone, and then something like this happens, and everything goes. But can you just talk about the poverty you saw recruiting kids in the Central Valley long before you came to BYU? Yeah, you know, we were, I've been in a lot of homes and in the inner city, and not just in, in California, but around the, around the country. And, uh, you know, you know, the... I mean, even even when I was in Indiana in the mission, I mean, I, I was in the, I was in the inner city a lot, and I saw poverty firsthand. And uh, but one of the things I will always remember is that no matter how impoverished their conditions were, no matter what their circumstances were, there were moms and dads and aunts and uncles who loved their kids and who wanted the best for their kids. 
and I, you know, I, they were, it was never a situation where I went into a home. It was more they, they, they appreciated me being there. And, if, you know, if I had assistant coaches, they got treated with such great respect. And I always went away from those experience recognizing that they may not have a great deal of money. They may not have the resources that a lot of people have, but they got what's really important. They, they, they have great love and respect for their children, their grandchildren. And you could just see the harmony in the home when you go in to visit those places. And, and I, I, I had some choice experiences being in homes where, uh, you know, mom was raising two or three children. Uh, there's an uncle or a big brother. There was just, the family, was, it was just a familiar experience when you went in there, and regardless of what their circumstances were. And I'll tell you what else happens. And to this day, that where I have gotten really close to young men that were junior college players, and especially now that I'm older and you have an occasion to run into somebody, run into a, a mom or a dad or somebody, and we just have a chance to sit down and talk about a really special time where in their minds, hey, thank you for giving my son an opportunity, but, you know, hey, thank you for supporting us and, and, and encouraging him to come to our school because he played a huge role and influenced a lot of people for good and it was great for the institution. So, um, no, I, I've had some really choice experiences with people that to, to this day that when I, see, when I see them somewhere or I get a text or uh, I, I get a little letter from somebody, that, that's one of the really great payoffs for coaches is when former players will, or families uh, who really have struggled We'll just, you know, share some gratitude with, with you regarding, you know, maybe your, your small role that you played with their son. And uh, those things mean the world to me. And that, that's, you know, what's interesting about this time. There's, there's been a lot of really good things that have happened as a result of this pandemic outside of the health issues and the death. And, but the, the, the positives, there's some positives there, too, where people uh, are really connecting with each other and families are connecting with each other and we're spending time with each other. And when in times in the past, we maybe haven't done that. And so, you know, yeah, we're looking kind of for a silver lining. This pandemic is horrible. It's, it's, it's just, you know, you just, it saddens you to see the number of people that are dying. And, and uh, but I, I look around in my community here, and I mean, just in the neighborhoods, I don't know how it is in your neighborhoods, but people are walking down the streets, stopping and talking. And hey, how, how people I don't know, you know, and I, they don't know me. And it's just, it's incredible to me what's really important in life. And you know that you probably had some aunts or uncles or maybe even parents that have passed. And you start, I've, I've met with enough people that in the last days and hours of their lives, you know, what was most important were family, how people treated each other, love and respect for each other, the dignity that one shows. Those are things that, that matter. And uh, you know what? Black lives matter. White lives matter. Asian lives matter. I mean, it, it absolutely does. And we've forgotten that. We have forgotten that, unfortunately. But I learned a lot of those things when I left. You know, I came from a middle class family that didn't have a whole lot. But I had a dad that taught elementary school and taught, you know, sold shoes at Sears after work. And, uh, you know, mom doing a million things. And so I, I had an appreciation for what I did have. And, and that's due to my family and my mom and dad. Not everybody has that. But when, when you go in to an inner city home and you sit down with them, uh, you can just sense and feel the love for their children 
and the protection of their children. And uh, it's, it's really, really gratifying. Some of, some of my sweetest experiences were on the road with, uh, in, in the inner city and uh, doing anything I could do to maybe help that young man, whether he was going to come to our school or not, but just reaching out to him and uh, not, had nothing but love for them and nothing but love for us. And that was really the, a big part of it. Even if we didn't get a kid, funny how you, you get close to people, even when they don't come to your school, you'll see them around. But when that, you end up playing that young man, he comes over, hey, coach, uh, hope you're doing good. You know, thanks for all you did for me. Uh, though that's what life should be about. You know, it's kind of how we treat each other. How much of that then responsibility when you go into these places and bring a kid or even if it didn't, but especially if the kid does decide to come to your school, how much responsibility did you feel then to the family of that kid in, the, in addition to the kid himself to make sure that things are okay in his life? Well, you do feel a lot of responsibility for all kids, well, you know, whether they were a kid that had far less than another. But, you, you know, it's one of those things that you become kind of a surrogate father. Mother, mind me, my wife was very involved with the young men. You know, oftentimes you have kids coming from other countries. And, uh, you know, that relationship, some of them had mothers in their homes. Some of them had dads in their home. Some had both. But when you're coaching, and you could ask any coach, you take any of the coaches and their wives and their children play a significant role in making sure that when a young man leaves his home and, 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 and is homesick or uncomfortable or hasn't made friends yet, you embrace them. And, and that's what great organizations and programs do, whether it's in business or in sports. It's making people feel loved and trusted and safe. And when they start feeling that way, then they perform at the very highest level. So, yes, you absolutely do that. And I think the thing that sometimes makes it difficult is, you know, when somebody's not playing and, and where circumstances change and, and uh, you know, maybe that individual's not getting the kind of playing time, they, they deserve to have conversations. I mean, I, the thing about coaching, really, you do a lot of things on the floor and you put systems in, and, but a lot of that is done by assistant coaches. A lot of the things that are really important for a head coach have to do with off the court. And those, you know, those opportunities to, to go, you know, walk on campus and have, have a drink and, and talk for 30 or 40 minutes and find out what's happening in their life or have them over to your home on the weekend or whatever the circumstance might be. And you, you start developing that trust. You start recognizing you can teach them what it means to be honest with themselves and others and what it means to be selfless and uh, you know, what it means to be accountable. Sometimes you have to take young men, no matter who they are, no matter what color they are, but you need to take them away from the team and have those moments that uh, you, you can share what you believe to be right. You know, and uh, integrity is a word we use loosely, but I mean, integrity is a big part of any organization. And one of the things that I tried to teach is that when, you know, doing what you say you'll do, is really important <laughs> in anything you do in life. And uh, uh, we, we see, obviously, a society right now where people don't understand that principle. But these principles are universal to all walks of life, to all types of businesses, to all types of organizations. And uh, I think sometimes we forget that. And so for me, 
that was a really important piece. You know, I, 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 I like to have won more games. I like to have won more championships. But today at 68 years old, you know what really means a lot to me is when a former player texts me or calls me, checks in with me during the, the pandemic, hey, how are you doing, coach? I mean, that makes my day. And that, that didn't happen by accident. That, a relationship had to be developed. We had to be connected. And uh, that's on a small, you know, in, in my small world, but we really need to look at the big picture that as well, you know, in terms of these connections and what we can do to better get along and have a different narrative and uh, less tolerance for the things that we've seen happen here, uh, not only in terms of the police, because I do believe, as was, and many people have said, you know, 99% of the police are good people doing the right thing, and obviously there are some that aren't, and it's disgraceful. But but we're, we're in a situation, too, where we have people right now that are out, you know, protesting and destroying property and destroying, you know, businesses and doing things. And that, that, that's, that's that there's something's broke here, you know, and we need to address that. And uh, our leaders need to address it. But we all need to address it. We need to talk about it. I think there's a lot of things that, especially as it relates to color, that we've all been kind of hesitant to talk about. Is it appropriate? Man, everything should be on the table right now. It's time. And, uh, and hopefully, whether it be through politics or your church or your friends or organizations or your businesses, we all need to be a little more enlightened about how we treat others and uh, how, we, how we are treated by ourselves. And, and those things are really, really important. So I, it disgusts me to see buildings being burned up and destruction going on. That, 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 that's so harmful. I recognize that sometimes you got to get people's attention to make change, but uh, I'd advocate a, a more peaceful way, and, uh, and and certainly it starts in our homes. You know, if you're a young father and mother, you start teaching these principles, the simple principles, you know, to love others like you'd like to be loved yourself, you know. It's a pretty simple thing. So I don't mean to be uh, pontificating here, but... I think everybody just is kind of disgusted with a lot of things that have been going on in our country for a long time. And uh, if this brings us to its attention, it's, it's just shameful what happened. But uh, hopefully from this, we can be better. Steve, thanks for a few minutes. As always, we appreciate it. We'll talk to you again next week. Thanks, guys. Take care. There's our basketball insider, Steve Cleveland. When we come back, what is trending? All the headlines coming up next.